Amber Webb, thank you for bringing this to us tonight. Thank you all for joining us. If you, if we could just take a little moment, I want to invite Lillian Elsas to offer a land acknowledgement before we begin. Is Lillian still here? No. And what I explained is, thank you for coming to see all the work the ladies have done from different areas. And I said I was from Port Graham. That's just down the peninsula here. So, and I said thank you for coming. Thank you. northern Canada down to the all the way down to Iowa and Nebraska and that's about as far south as I've gone with this I intended to have it be just northern places but it kind of has its own if somebody gives me a photo to use I won't tell them no because they're from a more southern area that's I don't feel like that would be right for this project so I just include everyone um, and these women have been killed or disappeared between 1969 and 2019. Since I started this project, I believe nine of the women on the project were killed since I started. There are, it would take 25 of these to represent the amount of Native women killed, the estimated amount in a year in the United States, 25 of these front and back. Um, that is kind of the scope of the issue. Normally I have a frame, but Raven bumped it. <laughs> I, just, I just drove straight down. I got off a flight from Dillingham and drove straight here and they bumped my frame. But you know, I, I think this is, it's not that often that people, there are that many hands on this. These women, you know, I tried to include as many from Alaska as I can collect photos of. Um, it's still unfinished. The back has photo has has um, portraits on it as well. Some cases that people might be interested. You can see on this side. There's a photo. Oh, this is really yeah. <laughs> fascinating. I've never done this before. So there's women like. Um, Two women in particular that I want to point out. I want to point out 
Valerie Sifsoff, who's on the hood, and she disappeared from Granite Creek in 2012. Her case is still unsolved. And she is someone, right, you can see her on this side of the hood, right by your hand there, yeah, that one. Um, and she's, I've known her family my whole life. I grew up with her. And then um, Lori D. Wilson right here, that's my childhood friend, and she went missing from Juno. I don't have anybody from the Homer, I don't have anyone from the Kenai Peninsula. So if there's people that have relatives or that know people from this area, I would love to include some. This is, I have about, I think nine people from the Bristol Bay region. We can drop it down if you, or unless you're taking pictures. And then I don't have anybody from Utjavik. I don't have any photos. Uh, so some of the ones that people ask about, fairly consistently um, are Ashley Johnson Barr, whose disappearance was handled very, very differently than most of the rest of these. And it was handled pretty well. And she was found. And it was full force, everybody, to Coxview. And that was very different than what has historically been the case. Um, and people will ask about her, so I put her right on the front in the middle. Um, the youngest person on this project is 18 months old. And she's on the back with her mom and her sister. And it, you know, there's stories. Each one of these women has a story. Some of them, even if I don't remember the date, or their last name, or maybe I don't remember the exact community that they come from. I remember each story because you don't forget when you read some of these accounts of what happened to these women. That's, that will stay with you forever. And that's, I think, a part of the task of doing this work. Uh, my goal is to take this to Washington, D.C., because Canada recently had an inquiry into the deaths of murdered and missing um, women. And they, they're the, the result of their inquiry is that uh, this is genocide. This is continuing genocide. And it's been happening for like over 400 years now. So what I think needs to happen now is I think that the United States needs to acknowledge that connection um, and everywhere where there's been colonization and there's continuing violence against indigenous people, it needs to be acknowledged that it connects directly back to genocide. That's what it is. So there's a pipeline through the foster care system that pushes people into trafficking and then into this. And that's, statistics say that I want to say it's over 60% of foster kids that are funneled through that system end up being trafficked. And I, there are no statistics for how many of them end up um, dying or disappearing completely. They're, they're, they don't exist. So that's all of the work that's being done to fight this is being done by small groups of Native women that are like constantly scrambling for funding 
really like doing a lot with what they have um, and a lot of the efforts to bring awareness and a voice to this are grassroots efforts by Native women, for Native women. So some things that um, some things that can happen um, that everyone can do is, you know, educate yourself about um, about this issue as much as you can in your area. Chances are, wherever you live, whether it's down here, anywhere in the United States, anywhere in Canada, just because I don't have them on this project doesn't mean that it's not happening and it's happening all the time. Um, uh, Abigail Echohawk, who did a report for the Urban Health Institute, said that she had such a hard time getting data from police departments in Alaska. They, there's a list going around that I believe has over 200 names on it. It is likely that Alaska has more of a problem with this issue than anywhere on the continent. <laughs> like, it is possible. You, but the statistics, again, are not, and may never be complete, but there are people working on them. And mostly, those people are Native women, like I said. So anyway, uh, that's what this project is. If you're looking for a person, I can point people out. Um, I'm acquainted with, I think, five of the women that I put on here. Personally acquainted with them. So. Any other Native women in the room want to add anything that I may have forgotten? Just in case there was something on your mind that I didn't say. Thank you, Amber. It's an honor to stand here and hold this up as a community for you, for all these women. I think that's particularly symbolic because I think Native women have been holding this up together for such a long time. It's a really, this is a very symbolic gesture of like, you know, we carry this around all the time with us. You know. I would like to invite everybody to come closer and invite more people to hold this up with me. Let's just gather more people along these edges. And we can all fit. Oh, yeah. I don't even mean hold it up high. I just mean hold on to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting because to continue the conversation with each of the women who have been involved have been affected by this story, and, and some of them have spoken to me about it directly. But I would like to pass the conversation to Bobby Itta, who came from Lukiavik to share her beautiful red cusp book in honor of her sister Nancy, and also to teach uh, a tikluk, which is the Inupiaq word for this garment, a sewing workshop tomorrow. And, and uh, 
one day here at Benel, and there's still room in that workshop, by the way. Bobby, where are you? Right there here. you are. Welcome. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I'm Bobby Ittah. I was born and raised in Kavanaugh. Um, the look I made was in honor of my sister, uh, Nancy. She was murdered 17 years ago. She was um, 15. And uh, I just wanted to do it in honor of her. And uh, it was really, I uh, haven't honored her really in any way. And when this movement came about, I was just, I wanted to do something in honor of her, so that's what I did. But um, the whole, so all the cuspics we were talking about, um, Asia was asking, you know, when is it okay to wear a, a tikkun And I told her, you know what? <clears throat> you can wear one anytime, whatever race you are. We're just proud and happy that you're that you'll wear one. You know, it represents who we are and where we come from, and that you're proud to represent our work. And so, wear away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because part of our work here at Benel in an ongoing effort to bring more equity and inclusion alongside excellence to our program is to broaden the conversation to include more makers and to include some of the questions that we have about also not just who should wear but who should make, who should make cuss books and who, who should sell them. Well, to me, I mean, so our cuss books they're all specifically, everyone has their own patterns. You know, every family has their own patterns and they're sacred. And I think, I mean, they should be made by Alaska Natives, but if you want to make one, I mean, for yourself or personal use, I mean, that's totally fine. But, you know, just cr the only part for me that crosses the line is if you try and start a business with without asking for permission. Because that's, you know, our... They're part of who we are, you know, and our culture, and um, yeah. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like, it's it's great to wear them, but buy them from uh, native makers. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people who are making them should be the ones that decide if they're going to sell them. I think. Yes. Yeah. Do you know where the first ones were made before there was cloth? No. <laughs> we, we know that the cloth came, that canvas came from the Russians, and so that's when the first cloth ones began to be made. Anita Virden, who made the four that expressed her ancestral, you know, matrilineal kind of heritage with the, with the um, Cusbook was telling me that then her family started to make them a long time ago from like um, sugar and flour sacks, like saving everything. We have with us today a few of the other makers in the room. I want to introduce Martha Murray, who's standing here and made this beautiful cusbook to my right. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to add? It's really an honor to have you with us. I'm just glad to be here and showing off my cusp. Thank you. 
And you're wearing a cuss book that was made for you by your cousin. Oh, my cousin made this for me. She died, so I'm wearing it for her. Yeah. <laughs> also with us tonight are Aaron and Carly Gingrich, mother and daughter, who came down from Anchorage. And they have uh, Carla's cuss is right behind me. She, Carla is actually Inupiaq and Athabascan. Where is Carla? She Oh, there's Erin. Erin's her daughter. <laughs> Welcome, Erin. Yeah, I'm going to pass the mic down to. It's Um, so Cuspucks to me have this beautiful capacity to express our current indigenous existence, our evolved indigenous <coughs> existence. Um, so much of our art forms have been um, delayed in their development um, to remain in this static um, place where they're recognizable um, and equal to our historical objects. And while those things are beautiful, we are a living people. We exist today and now. And uh, I, I just, I love seeing the evolution of our cuspucks because it represents our courage and our innovation and our creativity. And it, it represents this honored woman's work that has been going on for millennia, you know? of creating clothing for our families and our community. And um, I just think it's so beautiful to see all of these cuspucks together and all of them here representing um, our innovation and um, our ideas, our thoughts and feelings in our, our existence today. The one you're wearing is gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. small enough that it'll fit you like a shirt, but you can use pretty much the same pattern and alter it 
and make it longer and put a zipper yeah. and line it with fur, then it'll become a nitigi. But you just kind of fit it when you're making your pattern. You want to make it bigger so you can have fur or lining inside. Global warming makes it so you can wear a cuss and not <laughs> 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 Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. For us, it used to be outer cover for the, the fur, fur parka. Yeah. Was an outer. You, you put it on and you can change it, take it off and you can wash that other one and change it into another one. Yeah. Cover the park. That's how it was for us too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And are there cuss bucks for every day and cuss bucks for yeah. special occasions? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mine was a special occasion. <laughs> 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 for my husband's uh, class reunion. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Anita was telling me that one reason for her innovation is that people seek cuss for like gala events and so not just for daily wear. So she's, you know, making you know, like embroidery or like, you know, special mm -hmm. different fabrics mm -hmm. so that yeah. it can be like a statement yeah. piece. Mm -hmm. And then have your very picky. Oh, yeah. Uh, you wear it, like, yeah. have it so that you could go outside and do stuff in it, too. I have an old lady that's making them that way, trying to make them really utilitarian and stretchy with different fabrics that are easy to wash. And, like, I know a lady that sews the museum knitting into hers in the hood. Wow. And sews, like, a cell phone pocket for very long <laughs> 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 There's all kinds of things that are happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that was genius, though. So is the anorak, is that just the Canadian version of this cuspuck, or is, how, do, how does that fit in? from Dillingham and so I couldn't bring it with me. It's been really rough for bumped bags from Dillingham in particular lately, so, <laughs> so I wasn't able to bring it. Does the frame hold it up? Yeah, straight? it sits upright and it's about 12, yeah, it's about 12, 13 feet tall, so when I put it upright it's pretty imposing. Um, this has never happened before quite like this. <laughs> yeah. It's like Nalukta. <laughs> Blanket dog. <laughs> yes, be like. So, I want to say that um, it's it's really an honor. Um, you know, I'm standing here with Adele, the person who's the executive director of Benal, and I'm the artistic director. And we have Brianna Allen, who's our marketing and outreach, and we have Brianna Lee, who's um, our new, the newest member of our team, and. It's great we're all here, right? Like yours. And um, it's through the, the incredible work of our members and our board members who are numerous in this room and some of our founders who I'm looking at surrounded by you all that we're able to do this work. We have made it a part of our strategic plan to 
as I mentioned earlier, bring equity and inclusion alongside excellence in the work that we do. And to that effort, since our exhibit, Decolonizing Alaska, toured Alaska and went to Washington, D.C., and Amber, I really want to help you get this there, and I have ideas about how that can happen. We have seen um, the conversation change, and we're, we are working toward thinking of all the ways that it can change. And, it, and fundamentally, um, as uh, Gary Ukayak Beaver and Ryan Conero reminded us in Alakshka last year that it, decolonization begins with the stories that we tell, the way that we share our stories and our histories. So this is an historic event for us to hold it like this and bring this story, these stories into this room. Thank you. And we will continue this work. We have a host of programs. Help me remember Adele, Brianna, all the things we're Well, the workshop kicks off tomorrow. Join us. I'm so thrilled. Um, there's still a few spaces left. It's uh, Saturday and Sunday from 12 to 5. Mm -hmm. um, Emily Johnson arrives Tuesday That's or Monday. Right. We won't have the potluck on Sunday after all. Mm -hmm. So Emily Johnson, who's a Yupik uh, dancer, um, returns for her, it's at least her third for her fourth residency. It's a creation residency. She's writing a new piece, which is exactly what I was talking about, how the stories we tell ourselves that the potential <coughs> will become. Her new piece, the working title, is called Being, Future Being. And um, she'll be working with a couple pregnant women here in town, dancers, storytellers, over the next couple weeks. And we'll have a sharing here on the 18th at 7.30 p.m. And that's when we'll have a potluck and discussion about her work. And then um, we have um, the Indigenous Road Show. It's a two-week residency that begins with a, with, um, a training, an encounter with um, tribal leaders from across the Bay. I need to talk with Lily more about that. To, to become a better and um, more respectful host for Indigenous artists who are here in residence to create work, to learn protocols and um, to express the respect that's underpinning the reasons for offering this space and this community as a place for indigenous um, makers to create new work. We'll have a, a training and then there'll be this 10-day residency. And that piece, the Indigenous Roadshow, will return to Pinnell as a full-scale production in um, 2020. And then we end the year in terms of our indigenous programming with a solo show by Arjun Kavaznikov. Who's that? We have the gala. The gala on the first. Oh gosh, most importantly, the next event for, for a cusbuck after the workshop mm -hmm. is? Is the gala that we'll have on November 1st. And we're also going to be um, glad to have the Nanwalek seal dancers join us. Mm -hmm. So that was a really exciting thing that we learned. And um, if anyone feels like they'd like to help sponsor their travel, please talk to us because we're looking for that help right now. Mm -hmm. This is a wear your own cuspuck, so we expect everyone to come in their most excellent regalia. Well, milk and beverages, and everybody should wear a cuspuck that they made, they borrowed, they saved, they found, that they're celebrating, they've bought, they supported an indigenous artist in that act. And so we will have entertainment, food and drink, and friends here November 1st, 8 to 10 p.m., and that's the last night of the show. Mm -hmm. So I hope that you all come back. And where you're custom. I took a look. Thank you so much.